since 1870. Largest uh, collapse in per capita income since 1870. Yeah, that places into perspective, I guess, uh, where we are uh, in the global economy. And uh, I'm joined on the line now by um, two economists uh, who can certainly help us make sense of uh, what we heard this afternoon. And I'm joined on the line by Tsitsi Atendi Matika, who is the head of marketing and investment communications at APSA Investments. Also joined by Busi Sibego, researcher at the Institute for Economic Justice. Busi and Tsitsi, uh, good evening to you and welcome. Good evening. Hi, thank you for having us. Yeah, and uh, maybe let's start off here, Tsitsi. Uh, I guess uh, when we talk about that particular clip in the first instance, that um, this analogy of a hippopotamus eating uh, the lunch of the future uh, is uh, quite an interesting one for me because uh, I guess it speaks to this idea of intergenerational equity and uh, w- the implications of debt and uh, that burden being passed on from one generation to the next. What, what do you make of this budget as a debt stabilization, I guess, statement, as many people have suggested? So I think I, uh, it's, it's always interesting listening to the minister because he's got all these fantastic ideas. He quotes the Bible and, you know, he he, he makes you feel like things are going to go well. Does it make you feel like but, you're in church? Unfortunately, unfortunately, <laughs> the government just doesn't have a track record of actually delivering, um, particularly when it comes to the busts, right? So the, the the ideas are great. It's very conservative. And getting to a surplus by 2023-2024 sounds, sounds brilliant. It's exactly what we want to hear. It's exactly what the rating agencies would want to hear if we're still investment grade, but we're not. Um, and they still want to hear it because they can still downgrade us further. But I, it's just they need to deliver big quickly. It's, it's not even one of those where they've got time. They need to do this before October. Hmm. I think they need to give us something big before October. Yeah, yeah. Busi, crisis, yes. the largest crisis in about 90 years or so in South Africa. Um, and I guess we haven't seen output contractions of the magnitude we've seen here. And the primary aim of the budget becomes the primary surplus. I mean, is that what we should be shooting for here? Absolutely not. Um, I think that um, this budget, as we know, is an austerity budget. It's indicating to us that there'll be massive cuts um, over the next couple of years. And this introduction of zero-based budgeting um, is indicative of that. And um, we worry a lot about what will happen and who bears the cost. Um, And as we know, austerity um, measures um, and the costs of them are really the people, human rights, uh, and the face of austerity is really women in marginalized communities. And in the state of our country right now, we know that this um, approach is going to increase inequality and actually it's going to stagnate our economy even mm. more. How is it going so to do that, Lucy? Um, I, I guess for, for some of us, that connection might not be um, you know, as clear as, as it is for some. Maybe just explain that briefly. How, how would it, you know, how would zero-based budgeting or starting from scratch in the allocations we make uh, um, boost inequality or, or I guess make inequality even worse? I mean, first of all, I think, well, we should say, let's start by explaining what zero-based budgeting is. It means starting from scratch. Mm. Basically, everything um, is up for cutting. 
So we're starting with a blank slate, supposedly, and we're going to build the budget from scratch, which makes sense if it's your household budget, because <laughs> then you can build your budget from there. But this is a, a, a national budget. Um, and the assumptions there is that if you do this, then you're going to cut unnecessary expenditure, um, that you're going to cut um, wastage and corruption um, and all these different things. But really what we see is that, or in the past, what has actually happened with zero-based budgeting is that it's been abandoned because, one, it requires a lot of capacity. And if you've ever worked with government data, we all know that this data, one, is not clean. Um, and two, also, it's just really difficult um, to, to work with. But also, I think that what's going to happen with zero-based budgeting, we're going to cut projects that understand. And in the past, we know that government has cut a pre-screening cervical cancer program because they were understanding. And instead of saying, look, why are these people understanding? Mm. Is it because they don't have HR to hire people? Mm. What, what is missing? What they've done is basically just use this underspend as a way to cut that project. Yeah. A lot of projects will be cut. Sure, sure. And, and it's quite interesting. So I mean, I, uh, we'll I'm going to come in there. Can yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. Titi, go, go ahead before the, I make the comment. Yeah. Cost budgeting. I, mm. I, I do believe that um, if, if there was a way for government, I agree with Busi, if there was a way for government to do this efficiently. This is actually one of the best ideas they've come up with. And the reason why I say that is it's, it's like corporates, right? Corporates do this. And as much as government has a lot of red tape, maybe it's time for us to, to come up with a plan where we say, in this case, you have to, you only get what you ask for. And what you ask for, you have to defend. Mm. So maybe they become sharper, right? Um, and this is, this is a hope that you actually, as a department, you actually come up with the things that you know are an imperative, you know that you're going to fulfill, yeah. and you're going to focus. And if you don't do it, you know that next year you're going to lose your funding. So but, I think Titi, it could sharpen pencils I mean, a little bit. Just, just Titi, on, on that sharpening of pencils, I mean, I guess the other issue is the uneven institutional capacity across the state, right? Uh, we saw a big chunk of the cuts happening to, um, uh, sub-national transfers, so transfers to provincial government and even, uh, I guess, in some smaller measure to uh, uh, district and local uh, governments. And, and the big issues we've seen there, Titi, is uh, one, not only the, just this issue of not being able to spend, but even not being able to report on what you have been given. And uh, I guess the point that Busi is making is, uh, should people on the receiving end be punished for the inability of the institutional systems close to where they live, to really report and to execute spending? And maybe should national government intervene rather than maybe, I guess, cut back on the allocations? Absolutely. But we also have to remember that the man on the street right now is suffering because of everything that government has done to this point, right? So even if you you have to try something different, you can't keep trying what we've been doing before because that's not working. Mm. And the one thing that we've seen with COVID is private sector individuals who have have stepped up and you've seen Solidarity Fund for instance you've seen people who normally were CEOs or you know have other jobs stepping up to say listen we see a void here we see a gap we're going to bring our capability we're going to bring our expertise so this is this is happening already and I'm hopeful. I'm actually hopeful that maybe government utilizes this this space where everyone feels like mm. society has to, we have to cut together. Everyone has to play a part. And where there are gaps, we sit with private sector capability. Yeah, yeah. Let's pause there for a second because uh, I guess uh, the collaborative model that uh, Titi is uh,
proposing is certainly one of the things that we saw in the infrastructure project, uh, or sorry, the infrastructure symposium that happened uh, over the last day or so, where projects were packaged, prepared uh, alongside the private sector uh, in an attempt to execute them and bring them online a bit better. Uh, but uh, we'll come back to some of these themes and even, I guess, the, the big challenge of debt, 81.8% uh, debt-to-GDP ratio, and uh, I guess implying extensive uh, servicing costs. And we also saw that deficit breaching uh, the, um, I think it was 14% or somewhere there. Uh, my colleagues will correct me there if I'm wrong. And we'll pick up that conversation on the other side of this brief break. I want to hear from you as well. Give us a ring. 89 uh, Also going to be checking out some of your tweets there on at Metro FMSA. Do share with us uh, some of your views on the special adjustment budget uh, that came out today. And I saw somebody... Uh, this is an abbreviation uh, of it. It's called the SAB, and uh, uh, I don't know how comfortable I am uh, with that particular uh, abbreviation, uh, but uh, least of all, if we think about who else is referred to as SAB. But uh, we'll uh, return to this theme uh, on the other side of this brief break. That there, the uh, Director General in the Ministry of Finance, Dondo Mukhajani, uh, speaking uh, to, I guess, the decision-making uh, framework or process uh, that they arrive at in uh, saying, let's take money from Titi and give it to Busi, who will give it uh, to Kuma or whoever, and uh, all of that uh, uh, prioritization there. And before we get to some of those themes and maybe, I guess, the, the injection of new money in this particular process, uh, Busi, I want to bring you in here and maybe get your response to uh, some of the issues that uh, uh, Titi was raising in terms of, uh, I guess, zero-based budgeting potentially being uh, the start of a new process, giving us a clean slate from which to begin, uh, and maybe uh, effectively, as some people have said, trimming the fat. Yeah, no, I, I definitely don't think that zero-based budgeting is the way to go. And I think we are in this mindset about um, not doing the same thing over and over again, but at the same time, we need to acknowledge that austerity has failed and that zero-based budgeting is a way to actually implement austerity. And international evidence has shown us um, that austerity does not work, actually. And even the international literature on um, zero-based budgeting as a tool, particularly for government, um, has shown that there's been perverse and unintended consequences. And so that's why I've said that it sounds nice. It sounds like the logical thing to do. But South Africa, the country, is not a corporate and we cannot manage the national budget or mm-hmm. national finances as though they are corporate. And it's got massive disadvantages. And you have to ask yourself, why have countries that have implemented it before left it along the way? Um, and we can't implement old um, tools that mm. did not work and expect a different outcome like we've yeah. done with our macroeconomic policies. Yeah, yeah. Now, guys, I mean, the, the other thing that I found quite interesting here uh, at Zizi is this idea of suspension. Uh, and uh, when you see it with conditional grants, we saw, for instance, a um, 1.1 billion rand suspension of the urban settlements uh, development grant, which is about uh, upgrade of informal settlements and uh, as part of COVID, I guess, de-densifying these informal settlements in places like Langa, in Cape Town, Duncan Village and uh, uh, in East London and many other places. And then, of course, public transport network also just shy of 2 billion rand in a suspension there. And uh, I'm not so sure, I guess, what these suspensions mean. And maybe let's start off there. It's, it's because a bulk of the reprioritization that we've seen here has been not only just about reprioritizing funds from one program uh, or within a program, but also suspending some activities in the program. What does that mean? So I think, first of all, looking at the, the suspensions that, that you're mentioning, um, this is where they keep harping on the fact that these were programs that weren't working well. And 
a lot of girls go off when you're thinking, okay, but why were we still holding on to things that weren't working well? Um, if we knew these things weren't weren't bringing about any any sort of um, change that's that's useful, then why was it still there? So that's a bit concerning. Um, but yes, there are things that are being cut: community development and peace and security. Actually, had some money taken away from that, and that also starts making you think about um, the security of the people and where, where exactly does that come from. Mm. So things like that where you, you get concerned by the line items, a big chunk from learning and culture. Um, so, yeah, very concerning. But going back again to trying different things, yes, the literature on, on zero-based budgeting, zero-cost budgeting doesn't, doesn't bode well for, for a lot of nations. But again, COVID has rewritten history. COVID has turned things upside down. COVID has also brought about things that um, before would take 10 years to do. We've seen exponential growth in technologies that normally would have taken forever, but took weeks to actually get to that point. So mm. there, is, there, there is an element of a change in thinking and who knows. Yeah, yeah. Busi, uh, I guess, I mean, the, the other question that a lot of people are asking and uh, interesting tweet coming through here from Eddie Rakabe, uh, uh, certainly somebody who's, um, I guess, quite au fait with um, uh, sort of budgetary numbers here, saying that the 109 billion rand, which is effectively, I guess, the new injection, if we think about the half, uh, uh, you know, uh, half a trillion that the president was speaking about as the second phase of the relief. Uh, I mean, the bulk of that was really foregone revenue, tax relief measures, uh, and of course, the uh, loan guarantee scheme, about 200 billion rand or so, which really makes up the bulk of this. Only about uh, just over 100 billion was really, I guess, new money in, in uh, the sense of reprioritized money. And he says here, 109 billion rand of that is old money. And the rest, uh, I guess uh, there's a lot of budget gaming here. What happened to the rest of the 500 billion? And he says the interesting line item for me is the main budget balance and not necessarily the quantum, uh, but the fact that the deficit uh, will be a sustaining impact neutral spending programs. What do you make of how we've communicated some of the numbers here? I mean, uh, half a trillion people are talking about, and yet, uh, in effect, the new money here, which is sort of new deficit spending, is only about 36 billion rand. Uh, and I guess you add to that the commitment to slash spending by uh, just shy of a quarter of a trillion rand in two years. Uh, it makes one wonder when you sort of balance those two. Absolutely. I think the question really on my mind is where is the relief? Um, and the reason why I ask that is because across all these commitments, you can see, for instance, that um, even with the 200 billion um, loan uh, guarantee scheme that they've um, made available, about 10 billion has been lent in the first 100 days. That's not how relief works. Relief is not about, you know, over time we will borrow people money, but it's really about immediately um, making available those resources. And particularly also interested in this idea that the job creation and protection program, they've spent, they've allocated six billion this year. A relief package is not about medium term expenditure. Um, and across the board, really, you're seeing this where um, some of the, the allocations that were made are really about medium term spend as opposed to immediate relief. And as we know in the past, um, post crisis, really, it's about go big, go hard and go household. Mm. Um, and we haven't done that. And we haven't done that well. We have barely spent um, the amount of money that we said we would spend. And the IEJ actually made uh, um, some calculations to, today to say that majority of the um, COVID relief package has actually not materialized. 
Um, and that obviously has ramifications for our longer-term recovery, right? We can't recover if we haven't been able to preserve the economy. And I see in the budget they talk about preserving the economy. Well, we've really failed at that. We've barely given um, the number of unemployed people the 350 rand um, social relief grants, and they say it's 1.5 million. Um, so across um, this commitment, we are seeing that there's been massive, massive shortfalls. Um, and that's why the budget is also turning out like this, because Part of this package is most of it is actually off the the budget, right? So UIF is not actually like on the actual budget and so forth. So that's that's part of the reason why the numbers are different. Uh, but in trying to ask where's the relief? Titi, mm, mm, mm. I guess you know the the other dimension here as part of this relief is that two hundred billion rand of a loan guarantee, uh, bringing the banks together with the Treasury and the South African Reserve Bank. Uh, and, and I'm not putting you on the block here from APSA, but I mean I'm quite interested in what you make of why there's been such a low uptake of this. Uh, a lot of entrepreneurs have complained about the the really prohibitive requirements that are in place. I mean, uh, I know you have to sign a surety. I have that on good authority because. Uh, uh, certainly the um, entity that I happen to be involved in has applied for this as well. Uh, What in your experience and your observation accounts for why uh, this relief hasn't been taken up? And I guess that lending credence to what Busi was saying, which is, uh, it seems as there's a lot of numbers, but very little relief. So I think one of the, the big things that's come up is a lot of people don't know where to go. A lot of people don't know what to do or how do I actually, I've heard about this thing, but but who do I approach? So mm. I think a lot of the people who actually need it don't know where to go. And they've, we've also had cases where there are people who are going to the banks to try and apply for this, but don't qualify. The qualifying criteria is not met. So it's things like that where there's a mismatch in terms of the information that's being put out there that people can actually use. And I think also the government has so many programs right now um, that we're hearing in the media, but no one actually knows where to go. So mm. they will, someone who should be going to the UIF goes to the bank to actually apply for this relief, but that's not, that's not what this relief is for. You know what I mean? So I think that mismatch in information and also um, the, the, the knowledge out there is, is, is difficult. I think that it's, it's a difficulty that we're currently mm. having. Mm. Before, before I, mean, I go on to Busi on this question, I guess uh, uh, the minister and the DG were very sort of clear in communicating that uh, we don't talk about tax decisions or introduce a new tax bills at this uh, moment in time. We might maybe uh, speak to that later on in the MTBPS, but really only uh, in February 2021. What do you make, and uh, on the back of, I guess, the numbers that we saw, the fiscal outlook, the macroeconomic outlook, uh, do you think that we primed for uh, some tax rises? And if so, where do you anticipate them? So this is an interesting one. I think if you look at February, we were going towards um, maybe tax cuts even. It looked like they were trying to reverse the thinking around how do you deal with um, personal income tax because you're now seeing people getting quite reluctant, you know, and either people were now leaving the shores of South Africa and that's the high income earners who maybe get a lot of the tax or people were now finding ways to creatively not pay tax. So in a legal way. So um, it, it seems the the wording that's in the budget now seems like we only need five billion in the in the upcoming year, and yes, there's there's ten 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 penciled in for the other years for the outer years, um, but. You can actually achieve that with a bit of bracket creep, and Busi will probably be able to shed more light on this mm. um, 
but you you don't actually have to raise um, taxes in order to get the numbers that they pencil today. And also, you need to keep in mind that with what's happened with COVID, there are a lot of people who are going to fall off the personal income tax um, line item, and that's going to be a problem for government. So they need to actually find a way not to increase taxes. Hmm. Busi, I guess the same question to you as well. I mean, anything you're expecting on the revenue-raising side of things? Uh, I mean, I, I found it quite interesting that, uh, you know, Edward Kisweta was saying that from a rate perspective, he feels they've reached an inflection point, and now it's really about widening the net of enforcement and widening, uh, I guess, the base of uh, taxpayers. I mean, what are the prospects of doing that when people are getting retrenched left, right and center? Uh, And um, I mean, where do you expect that they're going to go to try and widen the net? Yeah, um, I'm also curious to know where they're going to go. But I think one thing I want to highlight is that in my research of a fiscal stimulus, what we found is that um, when taxes have been cut, actually, it does not um, reward us as much as we think it would. But when when taxation um, is basically increased um, for those with higher incomes, it contributes to demand growth and economic stability. So that's where I'm hoping they'll go. I'm hoping that they will look at that wealth tax that has been um, talked about for a long time. But I've also noticed that the IMF has even admitted themselves that a wealth tax is something to be considered, particularly in the context of high inequality. So I hope that the policies that they'll implement are not regressive, um, as we've seen in the past. So what I'm really saying is that cannot be one of the taxes that are increased, because as we've known in the past in the research that IEJ has done, is that the VAT increase is a regressive Mm. um, tax increase. Okay. Guys, I want us to pause here for a second. We're going to come back to uh, some of these themes again and uh, opening up the lines now. Give us a ring on 89 We'd love to hear your perspectives on some of the questions and uh, some of the issues that have uh, popped up uh, in this particular budget. And uh, what do you make uh, of uh, the many issues? It might be our debt trajectory. It might be uh, our under-collection on revenue, which uh, will certainly clear the 300 billion rand uh, uh, threshold that uh, we've been uh, uh, banding about, uh, or it might necessarily be, I guess, uh, the uh, pace at which some of the new grants have been paid, as uh, the um, uh, a DG at the Ministry of Finance was saying, Dondo Mukhajane. Uh, I'd love to hear some of your perspectives on this. What do you make of uh, the uh, special adjustment budget that was delivered? Some people saying, hey, 40 minutes uh, wasn't a good use of their time. And of course, some people, uh, least of all in the commentariat, I mean, I saw in one business publication, most people giving it a uh, anything between an 8 out of 10 right through to a 9 out of 10. And uh, those are some uh, economists and even uh, financial journalists uh, who are doing that. Uh, what would you give it uh, out of 10? Let me know what you think about that. We take your calls on 89 Double one zero double three double seven. Or you can also send us your tweets on at Metro FM essay. Use the hashtag Metro FM Talk. Nineteen minutes it is before nine p.m. We discuss the special adjustment budget uh, this evening here on Metro FM Talk, and uh, love to hear from you. Do share with us some of your perspectives there. You can give us a ring on zero eight nine double one zero double three double seven. And uh, I guess uh, the uh, tweet that we were reading earlier on made mention to. This idea of impact neutral spending and Edir Rakabi to explaining what he meant by that and saying these are the water tankers that make return trips to communities empty loaded and uh, temporary COVID-19 field hospitals that won't be utilized after the crisis, overpriced PPEs and uh, infrastructure projects that never get completed. And I guess uh, the impact there saying that uh, that is neutral and uh, it's sad that the deficit 
spending, in his suggestion, sustains some of those programs that uh, won't certainly have a long-run impact. I'd love to hear your views on that. Give me a ring, 089-110-3377. Or are we being too critical? Uh, some people might say, look, you guys are just being whiners, uh, you're too critical, and uh, there's no real other way out of this unless we want to hand over our sovereignty uh, to creditors here and uh, have runaway debt and that we're not Japan, as people uh, often say. Let me take some of, some of our callers on this question, and uh, we have Ndadesillo on the line. Ndadesillo, good evening to you and welcome. Hi, Papa. Sure, sure. Look, I, uh, I think normally we do not ask correct questions in terms of this budget allocation and doning mm. We are only looking at the figures and whatnot. Let me talk about this issue of um, creating jobs for the youth Yes, that um, some pillars have been put aside. But then how many jobs have been um, given to or produced by the government since last year. That You, you remember the Yes um, uh, 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 um, movement by the president? Is it a movement or whatever thing, mm. whatever they call it? How many jobs did we create for, for, for the youth? And, and then we, we must come back and count those things. And then how are we going to do that from um, this current budget? So, but now... We do not do these things. We are only focusing on what is happening today, and then we move on. And Madhu was like, Madhu, wait a minute. What had happened last year yeah. or two years back? What was promised, yeah. Mm. Exactly. Why are, why are we not questioning this kind, um, that our leaders, this mm. kind of question? What have we done back then? We, we, we must stop this, um, I, 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 I normally call it nonsense yeah, to yeah. say, we just love to celebrate, Aya. Every time a government put out money and then we celebrate, we must you know, that is a be a... Let, let me engage you on this point because I think you're making a very important point. Well, one of the things Finance Minister Mboweni made today uh, was a suggestion that they were going to monitor monthly and quarterly how some of this money is spent. Now, uh, sometimes people get very excited uh, when they hear that. But uh, if you speak to anybody who's worked... Uh, with National Treasury numbers or has worked for the Treasury, they'll tell you that there are things that are called in-year monitoring and, I guess, reporting and spending reports. Uh, And you can go online and find uh, the province of Bukonebo Piriba, how much they've spent on capital expenditure in Bujanala district, for instance. You'll be able to find those numbers. And I think the issue is that uh, we really need to maybe undertake the work of uh, trying to... um, direct more of our attention, least of all us in the media, uh, to saying, you you know what, Minister promised us this in February, we are now in September, Uh, where are we in terms of spending in a specific municipality in the Northwest, and what does that look like? Uh, I think that's a task for all of us, uh, and I definitely agree with you. Precisely, and and, and since when you are in this um, economic in Donin Donia, because I know you love this. <laughs> I know, I know you you, you like this. Please, I I, I mean, uh, uh, um, you guys, you are the voice voice. Ah, Dadasello. Sorry, I lost you. Sorry. I lost you there for a second. Oh. Yeah, there was some. Uh, I had something. I'm mm. saying, you media guys, yeah. you journalists, you are the voice of the voiceless. Are you? So trying to, uh, I think, 
just go on the ground, Aya. Mm. Talk to the people sure. and, and, and find out what is really happening. Sure. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm lucky, I'm, uh, um, I would consider one of the lucky person to engage with you to say, Aya, please, man, can you please ask this kind of question? But sure. what about the masses in Kayalisha? Mm. What are the masses in, in Bulobedu, in Mpumalanga, in whatever? Who cannot have the mm. opportunity, mm. by the way, and who can... And share a different view sure. of, uh, uh, um, uh, um, to say, but we want the government to do one to okay. say, I, that is a look. consider that. But thank you, thank you very much, and that there was Ndadeselo uh, speaking to us. And uh, Busi, I want to bring you in on that question because I think a lot of what Ndadeselo uh, is raising uh, would probably be within the purview of some of your work at IEJ and uh, also as members of the Budget Justice Coalition. And uh, he's saying that it's all good and well for us to talk large numbers here, Titi, and billions and billions. Uh, but if we can't see it in tangible progress on the ground, it's really meaning meaningless. And uh, Busi, I'll start off with you and maybe get uh, your views on that as well, Titi. A two-day gathering that brought together activists from across the country and we're really talking about, you know, the budget and... And one of the things, a message that strongly emerges is this idea that we need to make this information accessible. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's a real challenge. I mean, from on a personal level for myself, too, when I speak on platforms like this, it's continuously this challenge to make what I'm saying accessible. And it's, an un, it's a learning process, and it's difficult. And we are trying to find those avenues to increase that in access to information. I think the other thing that emerges strongly is this idea of accountability and participation. So one of the things that the organization said over the last two days was that we as civil society need to have a stronger um, consensus about how we monitor different spending from government at different levels because we're all doing different work. But how do we collaborate to ensure that all at, um, all elements are covered in particular? Um, and so that's, that's also something that's um, strongly come about in terms of this. But I also want to say lastly that this is all part of the econocracy, is what it's called. This idea that only experts can talk about economics. Mm. And this has been developed strongly with the field of economics, right? Like the field of economics has been driven by this idea that only certain people get a voice um, and other people just follow what needs to happen. And we really need to break this econocracy. I don't know how, um, but um, something that I think about a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Titi, on your end, I mean, what do you make of some of the remarks that Ntadesilu was making? So I completely agree. And just to add to not just the jobs, but thinking about things like the investment drive that the president has been on for the last few years. You know, we always hear about the investment uh, summit and how many pledges have come through and all these brilliant numbers. But we actually haven't been able to track it to see of those. And, you know, once in a while when we have things like um, SONA, the president will say of those, uh, so many have been, you know, have come to fruition. What are those, you know, so that we've got visibility? Is it is it infrastructure? Is it um, is it roads? Is it uh, water, you know, and sanitization? You know, it's things like that make it tangible for, uh, tangible for other investors who can then see in my space, how do I then mm. latch onto that and make my space my space more real. Yeah, and I mean, the other debate in that space, of course, is also about renewables. I mean, we can't be building the same infrastructure the same way we built it, you know, 50 or 100 years ago. I mean, the minister was talking about how our electricity system is from the era where 
King George was the governor of South Africa. I mean, imagine. Yeah, Imagine. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so I think we're at a point now where we've got this planetary crisis where we need to respond to climate change. We need to respond uh, to connecting our communities. And uh, I think there's, there's also a need for our infrastructure conversation to have that kind of emphasis. Let's pause here for a second. And uh, I guess uh, as we continue, our lines are open. And they're going to take a brief break now where we take some of your calls. Give us a ring, 89 110 uh, on Twitter saying, I'm happy Ndadesello raised the issue and uh, that uh, you also elaborated uh, more on it. We don't do detailed follow-ups on where the finances are being spent. And I think uh, the point that Busi was making is that that's not only the job of the DPME or even the Treasury uh, in uh, monitoring India, uh, uh, reporting and I guess uh, uh, of how these resources are spent. It's the responsibility of every citizen in this country to be active. Can't just be active when you go and vote in the ballot once every four years uh, and think that, yeah, my job here is done, song is and then uh, you move swiftly on along. It doesn't work like that. And uh, I guess all of us have to think about this and think about that activism or that uh, sense of active citizenry in uh, many ways as the rent we have to pay for breathing the air and living in, uh, on the earth that we live in. And uh, I think uh, we got to respond and use all the tools at our disposal to respond to the planetary crisis. And one of those responses is using budgets at a national and at all levels. And uh, if it means that uh, you now dust up your knowledge and you find out who your councillors are, then Kawenzanjalo, because um, you know nobody's going to come like manna from heaven to come and save us. Eight minutes it is before 9 p.m. Yeah, Minister Mboweni saying uh, we are staring down the barrel of a sovereign debt crisis. And uh, Busi, let me bring you in on this question. Uh, I mean, uh, do you agree with that statement? And uh, I guess, uh, do you get a sense that uh, maybe this is a debt scaremongering, as some people have suggested? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, there's, there's something about um, moralizing austerity or normalizing austerity. It's always on the basis that debt is ballooning and that it's going to burst and everything is going to go terribly wrong. I think in South Africa, what we really need to think about is our debt servicing costs. That's really where um, the problem and issue lies. It's this idea that South Africa, compared to other emerging markets, has very high bond yields, um, that South Africa is really borrowing at a higher, um, at a, at a costly, um, on a costly basis, basically. And so uh, for me, it's really about how do we move from here? The first question being, why is our debt servicing costs so high? comparatively, but also what do we need to do? What does SARS need to do to reduce um, the cost of borrowing? And we've noticed over the last couple of weeks and months as um, SARS has intervened that borrowing costs have actually declined. And the question is, why can't we continuously do that? Why can't we borrow in rands? Why can't we, you know? And so there's many questions that we really need to ask ourselves uh, before we think that debt um, as this, you know, uh, big thing is going to be terribly bad. But also to say that there's no international evidence on how much debt is too much debt. Um, continuously, I can't believe how many times I have to say this, but there's no, like, 100% is terrible, but it's really about the debt servicing costs. That's what we should worry about. Titi? Mm-hmm. I think what I'll, what I'll add to that is my concern is around the $7 billion that we need to borrow um, offshore because if you think about it, if the rand blows out, mm. that cost is going to increase, right? So it's not just about borrowing at a low rate, um, but it's also about that dollar-denominated um, debt that we add on. Yeah. You know, yeah. what happens to that when the rand gets here? 
Mm. And I guess uh, the issue uh, is certainly around the composition from a currency perspective of that borrowing. And I guess the other issue is the composition of that spending. What are you borrowing to spend on? Uh, and uh, will that assist you to be able uh, to meet your obligations to some of your creditors uh, on the other side? And uh, maybe, I guess, to the pair of you, as we wrap up, uh, um, got about five minutes or so left in our conversation. Busi, I'm quite interested. Many people have said there wasn't any new era or new generation thinking in this budget. And some people have also said uh, really wasn't anything that uh, would pass off as very sort of gender sensitive or even... I guess, climate sensitive uh, in this budget. Uh, what's your view on that? And what are some of the things, uh, certainly on the expenditure side of things, that you think we could be doing that can shift the needle and make how we spend our money a lot more sensitive uh, to the fact that the burden of adjustment um, in our South African economy is held by black women? And uh, as we saw in the numbers yesterday, I think the burden of adjustment in the South African labor market is uh, largely felt by young black female workers or work seekers. Um, absolutely, I agree with that totally. I think that um, it's still uh, the neo-liberal um, framework that we've had and we've seen and tested it and it doesn't work and we are insisting on continuing with this, with this economic orthodoxy. And it's really painful to see and we've abandoned um, gender-responsive uh, budgeting since the late 90s already and here we are and there's no mention of gender-based violence in this budget at all despite the president having spent so much time um, and going to great, uh, you know, uh, length to tell us about how GBV is bad, but there's no money there. There's no money that's being spent there. So it tells you a lot about where the priorities are, because ultimately the budget tells you about what a nation's priorities priorities are. But also, I just feel that um, again, it's it's this austerity thing that we've been doing since 2014, 2015. We've seen that globally it hasn't worked. Yet we are still insisting on going in this path um, that we know will not create employment. In fact our debt-to-GDP ratio is likely to increase mm. as we continue on this path. Where else could we be spending the money, Busi? And I guess that's, that's the question. Where else, from a composition of spending perspective, where could we be getting much better bang for buck, or as economists often say, the best multipliers for the kind of things we want to achieve? <laughs> Absolutely. Funny you mentioned this. I've just um, finished writing a paper on this. So the one thing is, obviously, if you go household, that's one of the ways, like I've already said mm. earlier on, we could be spending it on households, um, because they've got a higher marginal propensity to spend, and particularly the lower income spend on domestic markets. We could be spending on sectors that have high employment multipliers, mm. and that's very important. We need pro-employment macroeconomic policy in South Africa. Sure. We should be spending to structurally transform our economy in an equitable way, right? So we can't say growth first and then, you know, equality and equity and later. Then like it has to be yeah. built into... Um, our strategy, mm. um, and we are still stuck on our towards, um, you know, that last strategy that the Treasury released. I can't believe that even after COVID, we are still referencing that paper yeah, despite yeah. everything that's happened. Okay, Titi, you have the last word. So I think one of the things I would have loved to see is the minister tagging onto the president's smart city dream. Mm. Um, is this not the ideal time to to bring that sort of thing sure, to fruition? Sure, you know, sure. so when you talk about where should spending be going, I think that's that's where it should be going. Mm, mm, mm. Guys, it's been a pleasure having the pair of you here, and uh, thank you so much for sharing all of those uh, great ideas and insights with us. Tizi Atendi Matika from Absa Investments and Busi Sibeko from the Institute of Economic Justice. Thank you very much, ladies.
And uh, yeah, I mean, that's where we are with the budget. Uh, oh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know uh, what to make of it. Uh, it certainly does feel like uh, we're trying to move in two directions at the same time, uh, trying to give with the one hand uh, what we effectively are planning to take with the other. Uh, and I guess that's what happens when you have to uh, use an instrument like the budget to speak to different audiences and uh, just judging from how the financial markets have responded uh, to this budget, uh, the day ending in the red on the JSC and I think uh, some marginal declines uh, for the South African Rand as well. So that might give you a sense of how those who manage uh, the monies of those with deep pockets and those with deep pockets have responded to this, but uh, they aren't the only ones who matter. And I think uh, many of our people will continue over the next few days or so to respond to this budget and uh, I guess uh, over the next few months or so in the next few years they will feel its impacts on the ground Uh, that might be in uh, uh, I guess uh, transmission lines being put out uh, uh, wind farms and solar farms being set up and uh, uh, I guess uh, hopefully having some water running out of our taps. 9 p.m. is the time. Uh, We're going to have to leave it there uh, this uh, evening. The man with the music is already here. He's your musical accompaniment on this evening. We'll be back with you again tomorrow. Same time, same place. Have yourself a great evening. Take strength, my Africa. Nangoku. Sisaibanga. Le Ekonomi.